in 2020, more than 100,000 women of color went missing. At least four black women and girls were murdered per day in the United States. Most of those cases are still unsolved. These are their stories. Hi listeners, I'm your host, LB. Is it possible that a town in Nebraska with a population of 14 residents could be responsible for the death of a 50-year-old grandmother? I'll let you decide as you take this journey with me and I tell you the story of Sherry Ann Woundedfoot. Sherry's story is a sad one, not only because she met a violent and tragic end, but because like so many women of color, the amount of information available about her case is so limited. And yes, this may feel like deja vu because you heard that very same thing in episode one, the Hattie Brown case. But isn't that the point? If there was an overwhelming amount of information in this case, then it should be solved, right? I'm getting ahead of myself here. To understand how Sherry became an episode on the cost of color, we need to fully understand the dynamics of Sherry's environment and how we got here in the first place. Sherry Ann Woundedfoot was born on July 13, 1966 in Rapid City, South Dakota. And she was one of seven children born to Jonas and Florence Woundedfoot. Her family lived in the Oshkosh community in Rapid City until the community that her family called home was all but destroyed in the 1972 Black Hill flooding. Now, for those of you that are unfamiliar, the Black Hills flooding is one of the deadliest floods in U.S. history. Rain had already saturated the land in Rapid City for several days, but on the afternoon of June 9, 1972, more than 15 inches of rain fell in just a few short hours. Debris started blocking the Canyon River Dam, which caused another 11 feet of water to be released, adding to the already moving floodwaters. The result of this flood was devastating. 238 people were killed, and there were more than 3,000 injured. The damage was estimated to be more than $160 million, which in today's time is the equivalent of $1.2 billion. Like so many who called Rapid City their home, the Wounded Foot family was displaced after the flood, and they found refuge in Evergreen Housing, which is on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Pine Ridge Reservation is home to the Oglala Lakota Nation, or OLN, and they were more than 19,000 strong living on this reservation. I can tell you that before this episode, my knowledge about reservation life was so limited and so steeped in assumptions. In my mind, living on the reservation 
meant living by your own rules and customs and being steeped in your own heritage. And while all of that is true, there is so much more happening on reservations than most of us have ever realized. Pine Ridge is one of the largest reservations in the U.S., yet it is the poorest reservation in the U.S. Why? Well, let's start with politics. Every res is allowed to govern as they choose. Some reservations choose to maintain a hierarchy through traditional means, like picking an elder, while others, like Pine Ridge, chose to adopt a U.S.-style government where officials are elected for two-year terms. To some, this style is not effective because, as we all know, an elected official can barely get anything done in a four-year term, and a two-year term yields even less results. Pine Ridge receives $80 million in federal funding every year. Yet very little of that money changes hands inside of the Pine Ridge Reservation. Border towns benefit from this money. In fact, a Walmart in Sharon, Nebraska was built specifically because of the Pine Ridge Reservation. So instead of having a thriving community, the OLN and their people suffer. Most families cannot afford to buy their own homes, so living in crowded, multi-generational homes is the norm on the reservation. Extended families pool their limited resources together as a way to meet basic needs. And as a result, homes are overcrowded, job opportunities are scarce, and it is not uncommon for the head of the household to actually leave the res in order to gain employment that can help support their family. During a 2010 U.S. Census, there were 18,000 people on the reservation, and 89% of residents were unemployed, while 53% of the residents live below the federal poverty level, stating that the average income was a little more than $8,000, which was the poorest in the nation. Why financially, the res is among the lowest, everything else in Pine Ridge was among the highest, including teen suicide, diabetes-related health, amputation rates. All of these are several times higher than the national average. This lack of resources, housing, and opportunities, well, it can take its toll on anyone's mental health. And even if it were available, the odds of people of color using mental health services historically has been slim to none. So how do you escape the enormity of your reality? Well. Most of us self-medicate with drugs and or alcohol. But alcohol is illegal on the reservation. So the next best thing is to make the two mile walk to the border town of White Clay, Nebraska in order to drown your sorrows. In 2020, 
the town of White Clay boasted a whopping population of 14 residents. No need to rewind, you heard that correctly. 14 residents in this one square mile town. A town that is made up of seven households spanning three families. So what on earth can be so appealing about this town? Although it only has 14 residents, this town has four, count them, four liquor stores. You see, White Clay, commonly referred to as the Skid Row of the Plains, is known for one thing and one thing only, its ability to provide alcohol to the Pine Ridge Reservation. In 2010, the four liquor stores in White Clay grossed more than $3 million in alcohol sales. And they averaged selling more than 13,000 cans of beer per day. And therein lies the heart of Sherry's story. Despite all of the adversity on the res, Jonas and Florence, they did their best to keep their children focused on school. Sherry attended Pine Ridge Indian School, where she was active in sports and cheerleading. And like her parents, Sherry would instill in her children the need to never stop learning. And she took her own advice. After leaving Job Corps, she would obtain a wide range of skill sets including becoming a small engine repair person and even a certified nursing assistant. Her first of three children was born when Sherry was 18. And as a single mom, she often worked two jobs to make ends meet in order to provide for her daughter, Sandra. And just a side note, her daughter is named after her sister, so throughout the show, I'll refer to her daughter by her nickname, Sandy. Sherry's need to provide for her children did not stop her from being a very hands-on mother. Her daughter, Sandy, recalls during a 2017 interview with the Native Sun News Today, how her mother taught her how to read at the age of four by sounding out words with her. Sandy notes that her mother was very hands-on and educational with her. And as important as learning was, Sherry was also a stickler for a routine, which included getting up early and making breakfast for her children every single day. Sandy recalls that bedtime was always 8 p.m., even if the sun was still out. Sherry's children were her life, but that does not mean her life was all sunshine and roses. She was dealt her fair share of tragedy and then some. During Sherry's teen years, she lost three of her siblings in one decade. Her sister Sandra was allegedly killed by a Bureau of Indian Affairs police officer in 1973 during a takeover of Wounded Knee. She also lost two brothers in the 70s, Art and Pat, but there aren't a lot of details related to how they actually died. Her brother Joe 
died in a DUI-related car wreck in 1987. In 1991, Sherry's mother died in her sleep. If you couple adversity, poverty, and tragedy together, any one of us could be seduced by something that would help ease the pain. And so, Sherry turned to alcohol for comfort. Sandy was able to recognize at a very early age that her mother had a lot of heartache and unresolved grief and believes that alcohol became Sherry's healing mechanism. Not only was Sherry dealing with the loss of loved ones, but Sherry was involved in several domestic violence relationships over the years, some of which Sandy was actually witness to. Sandy recalls seeing her mother beaten up on several different occasions. And listen, Sandy admitted that she herself was a troubled teen and would smoke cigarettes. Sandy recalls her mother hiding her cigarettes and telling her not to smoke. But once Sherry began self-medicating with alcohol, the roles reversed and the once doting and protective mother became the child. And at 27 years old, Sandy was forced to become overprotective and watch over her own mother. Even with all of her struggles, when Sherry became a grandmother for the first time in 2004, she was so proud and was so excited to become a grandmother. You see, in the Lakota culture, grandmothers play an important role as they serve as a decision maker and provide childcare when needed. And they're just overall a really pivotal role in the upbringing of their grandchildren. Eventually, Sherry would have in total 13 grandchildren, all of whom she adored. Sherry loved spending time with her family. And whenever she spent time with her grandchildren, she would cook for them and make them sun tea. But make no mistake, as strong as Sherry's love was for her children and grandchildren, her need to cope with the hand that she was dealt was still as overwhelming as ever. And so on September 20th, 2009, Sherry faced her own legal woes after stabbing a man in the abdomen, facing charges that could land her in jail for 10 years. I couldn't find out much about this assault. The case was actually on hold, so it's not clear if this was someone she was involved with and this was a domestic violence incident or if alcohol was involved and this was a random attack on a complete stranger. Nevertheless, the hits just keep coming because three years later in 2012, Sherry would face another tragedy when her brother Sanford's body was found in good old white clay, beaten and lifeless. There were no arrests in Sanford's murder and to this day, the case remains unsolved. After years of making the two mile hike to White Clay to drink and hang out with her friends, 
It seems as if Sherry was in white clay to seek help in turning her life around because she was visiting the Lakota Hope Ministry. Lakota Hope is a Christian-based ministry that offers a wide range of resources to those considered discarded by society, but are working towards changing their lives for the better. The ministry offers services to help overcome addiction, all while healing families broken by addiction. But unfortunately, the town of White Clay would take one more member of the Wounded Foot family because on the morning of August 5th, 2016, emergency workers were called to the Lakota Hope Ministry building. There, the workers found a woman who was unresponsive. That woman was Sherry Woundedfoot. Now, here's where things get a bit dicey for me. You see, the medics failed to properly diagnose and triage Sherry at the scene. At approximately 9.45 a.m., she was examined at the scene, but the medics did not note any signs of trauma, even though Sherry's body was covered in blood and bruises. The medics determined that no emergency existed and they dropped her off at the Indian Health Service emergency room at 10.05 a.m. At the hospital, Sherry suffered a seizure. And so the hospital staff realized that they needed to get Sherry to a hospital that could better treat her. So they called Rapid City Regional Hospital for help. And Regional says, oh yeah, we can take her, but only if she has a CAT scan first. And so two hours after she arrived at the hospital at 12.09 p.m., Sherry was given that CAT scan. And doctors immediately found that she had been bleeding inside her head and needed immediate surgery. Although deemed urgent, it was more than an hour and a half at 1.25 p.m., when a medical helicopter airlifted Sherry to Regional Hospital. But by that time, the delay in diagnosing her when she first arrived to the emergency room had irreversible repercussions. A patient's best chance for recovery is often called the golden hour. Sherry suffered a serious head injury and had she been properly diagnosed when she first arrived to the emergency room, who knows what her chance of survival could have been. At 4.42, Sherry underwent brain surgery at Regional where the staff again noticed bruising on her face. So, the staff at Regional, they gave her another CT. And they identified that in addition to the bleeding inside of her head, she had fractured ribs and fluid, which was likely blood inside of her abdomen. Unfortunately, after the brain surgery, Sherry lapsed into a coma. The doctors advised that she would remain in the coma or die if life support was ever taken away. And so, on August 17, 2016, 
Sherry's family decided to move her back to IHS for end-of-life care. And there, surrounded by her family, Sherry made her journey to the spirit world. There have been no arrests made in Sherry's case. And sure, there are theories circulating that her assault was a direct result of her attack back in 2016. Or, since they were eerily identical, that the same person or people that beat and killed her brother Sanford were also responsible for Sherry's death as well. But to this day, there have been no arrests made in Sherry's case. Now, I need to vent for a second. Because in what world do you see someone covered in blood and bruises and don't immediately come to the conclusion that there absolutely is trauma of some kind that occurred here? Is it because she was found in white clay, which is known for drinking and violence? Now, make no mistake, I am team healthcare workers, but healthcare workers are human. And I think personal bias impacted the care that Sherry received versus the care she should have received. How about, as a general rule, we assume trauma until proven otherwise, yeah? This was deemed as non-emergent by the first responders. Why? Did they think that she got plastered and fell repeatedly to cause all of the bruises on her body? And listen, I'm not naive. Alcohol can make you do all sorts of things, but as a first responder, you don't have the luxury of playing judge and jury. Your initial interaction with the patient is a critical one and can have lasting effects on the health of the patient. While the Hippocratic Oath is a pledge for doctors, the same rules apply for anyone interacting with the patient. And that is, provide proper care and treatment to a patient. Sherry deserved better. She deserved treatment instead of judgment. Sherry's whole life, the hits just kept coming. And even up to her death, they never stopped. When she wasn't grieving the loss of a member of her immediate family, she was battling her own demons. When she made the decision to change her life for her children and her grandchildren, someone decided that her life did not matter. And so they brutally attacked her and beat her until she was a broken and bloody shell of herself. And then, in her time of need, when literally her life depended on it, she was judged, overlooked, and treated as less than human, which ultimately aided in her death. I don't know how Sherry's children and grandchildren do it every day. I mean, there are so many reasons to be angry. Angry at the person or persons who beat Sherry. Angry at the medical personnel who failed to diagnose her properly. Angry at that town that was allowed to legally poison their loved one. 
but as painful as her death has been, it has not been in vain. As a direct result of what happened to Sherry, a group of activists began working to end alcohol sales in white clay. And in 2017, the Nebraska Liquor Commission declined to renew the store's liquor licenses. To this day, alcohol sales are prohibited in white clay. In 2019, Sandy filed a federal lawsuit against IHS and their failure to properly diagnose and treat her mother. And while I'm sure that Sandy and the rest of her family would much rather have Sherry here making sun tea and cooking for her loved ones, her death has started a movement, a movement for positive change. But that doesn't mean we don't owe it to Sherry to seek justice. While Sandy battles her legal case against medical personnel, we still need to find out how we got here in the first place. Who brutally beat and killed Sherry Woundedfoot? If you have information, please contact Oglala Sioux Police Department at 605-867-5141 or the Nebraska State Patrol at 402-471-4545. For more information about this case, visit us at thecostofcolor.com. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have information about this case and you are uncomfortable talking to the authorities, then talk to me. You don't know me, but my word is my bond and you will remain anonymous. You have my word that by contacting me, you have a safe and judge-free zone to tell me what you know. Email me at coldcases at thecostofcolor.com. The Cost of Color is a 1602 production.